0: lab talk with laura listen i implore ya won't never bore ya lab
1: talk with laura always
0: more in store ya
1: talk with laura what?
2: to Lab Talk with Laura. Today we're doing a very special episode. Um, we're going to have a different format where we're going to listen to some interviews that I did at a meeting that I went to in September. It was the meeting of the Southern California Earthquake Center, um, a really cool acronym, uh, SCEC, if you say it out loud. Um, but it's a really cool community of people who study earthquakes from a lot of different angles. And so it was fun to get to talk to people about that. And so we're going to check out those interviews. And then I have some people joining me in the studio to talk about the interviews as we listen to them. So if you guys want to just go ahead and introduce yourselves.
3: Uh, my name is Ben Alvik. I'm co-founder of uh, Fully Rooted. It's a juice and kombucha company in Rhode Island.
4: Hey, all It's Raquel, back again, PhD student in the geoscience department at UMass Amherst.
5: Uh, hey, y'all. Edwin, again, back again. Uh, and I'm a PhD student in uh, molecular and cellular biology in the vet and animal science department. Hey,
2: you guys, this is Laura. I'm just jumping in to say this is actually part two of our very exciting two-part episode featuring interviews from SCEC. Um, so we're going to jump right into our interviews and continue on with our commentary from Benjamin, Raquel, and Edwin. Here we go into our first interview. So who are
6: you? Who am I? My name is Alex Hatem. I'm a graduate student at USC. Um, yep. Yeah. So uh, can you tell me about your research? Yeah, so I study active tectonics, active faulting, um, looking at the occurrence of old earthquakes through time um, and space. Uh, curious about how fast faults move and if they change their rate over time. So do you look at specific faults? Where do you look at faults? Um, I'm usually looking at faults in New Zealand. Uh, I'm working on the Hope Fault in the Marlborough Fault System, um, but I'm also working on the Garlock Fault in Southern California. Okay,
2: cool. Um, so... Can you tell me about maybe what kind of stuff do you do when you go to look at a fault? Yeah,
6: so when we go to look at a fault... we're trying to characterize its width, its fault width, so we're trying to see if it's just one strand or many strands. And then once we figure out where it is, we like to dig holes that go across it. Sometimes the holes go um, perpendicular to the fault so we can see the layers that have been offset by the fault and we can count up how many earthquakes have occurred at this location. Other times we're digging holes that are more parallel to the fault through other landforms like channels or ridges that have been offset by the fault laterally. And then we can um, constrain how much the fault has moved and offset this feature after we look at it in the subsurface.
2: Do you have a favorite place that you've gone to do field work? Like what's it like to do field work? Um,
6: Doing field work is really fun. My favorite time in the field was um, actually when we got to go and map the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake. So I got the really great opportunity to go and map the surface rupture and measure offsets associated with that rupture. we were measuring offsets like up to 11 or 13 meters big and in horizontal and four or five meters tall. And it was just massive stuff you couldn't imagine. But we were seeing it with our own eyes, but it was hard to believe. Uh, It was just so cool. So where was that? That was in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
2: Um, That was kind of a special earthquake, right?
6: Yeah, it was really cool. It was special because it involved so many different faults, and it lasted a really long time. Yeah, it was a really complicated rupture, and it went uh, all over the place on faults that usually don't have earthquakes to faults that have earthquakes frequently, so it involved many different kinds of faults.
2: Uh Did you always know you wanted to study geology?
6: No. I was an English major in college. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was an English major, and I was trying to satisfy my science requirements. I took an environmental studies course where it was like the first time I had ever been introduced to numerical modeling, and we did like a fake model in class, and people were modeling really interesting things like about the environment, about the class we were actually taking, but I made a numerical model about how to win the World Series and how to pick your best team to win... uh, Win a win baseball games. And, okay, and that was how I thought, like fantasy baseball. Yeah, like fantasy baseball before I understood what fantasy baseball was. Okay, yeah, and like the a computer model. Like yeah, it was a Stella model. It was like a like a box model of how to pick a good team. I I basically was really into baseball, and thought that the Red Sox were going to win every year, and they did it. <laughs> and when they didn't, I was really disappointed, and I thought I knew a better way to run the team than you the managers thought.
7: did. <laughs> so.
6: Okay. So, so it has to do with, like, how you pick your players yeah. or, like, train them or, like... Right, so how do you assemble a team's lineup every night? So if you're facing, a like, a left-handed pitcher who loves to throw a fastball up high, but he also has a sinker, like, who will you put in the lineup, and can you make a trade and, like the order matters and what can you predict the score based on this it was like a really dumb thing but the point was I was really not into environmental studies I was
2: like (laughs) I really so did
6: you pitch this to the Red Sox did you try to help them no but my, my, my lab instructor was a really big fan of baseball so she let me go by not, like,
7: <laughs>
6: actually doing anything related to the course.
2: Wait, okay, so this still doesn't clarify how you ended
6: up in... Right, so she could tell, <laughs> she could tell I was, like, really not into environmental studies. <laughs> but I. she was like, you really seem to like the part when we talked about geology. I was like, I did really like that part. She's like, why don't you take a geology class? Okay. And see how it goes. And I just took one class, and it was, like, the rest was history. So I really enjoyed uh I really enjoyed the subject, so I know. What,
2: what about geology, like, won you over? Um, just, like, how big
6: everything was. And, like, thinking about how big and how, like, much time has gone on that, like, we don't know about. Like, I mean, we know about it, but it's, like, we'll never experience that. Yeah. It was just, like, this alternate universe. But it, it's not an alternate universe. It's, like, our universe. It's, uh-huh. like, what we're walking on. But it's so... It's like really trippy.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Nice. So before we're done, I have one last task. Um, so in my radio show, we, at the end of the show we play a game called GTA, guess that acronym. Okay. You can provide me with an acronym from your field, and I'll try to guess it. And obviously, I have a little bit, you know, I have a little background in uh, in in earth science, so yeah. I might have an advantage. But
6: right. Um. Let's think. What about OSL?
2: O-S-L Offset Slip Lever <laughs> No, no. Um, Wait, wait, let me try again None of those words were correct Okay, thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> For that hint um, um, Is it is geology related? It's geology related, is it, yeah Is it, is it paleoseismology?
6: Uh, it has to do with paleoseismology It's a tool Ooh. we use when we're doing Ooh,
2: Um Oh, uh, I'm thinking like old soil layer. Okay, you're on the right
6: track. Am I? Yeah. Okay. And doesn't it
2: doesn't stand for old soil layer, <laughs> <laughs> but it
6: helps us date an old soil layer.
2: Um. Ooh, ooh. Um. Uh. I feel like the L is luminescent. Yes. um yeah. Ooh, ooh.
6: Uh, how, uh, how do we see things?
2: Optical, yeah. Uh, seeing luminescence? <laughs> no, I don't. Know. Stimulated. Oh, optical stimulated luminescence. Yes. Okay. So, can you explain what that is?
6: Yes. So, optically stimulated luminescence is a is a geochronometer. It's a dating tool we use um, that essentially tells us the last day a grain of sand saw light. So, it's this. It's a um, burial dating technique. So, what we do is when we have Um, a hole or a trench uh, near a fault, we take a steel tube, hammer it into the side of the wall. Um, So that way it's sampling dirt that's back there that's not seeing the light. Okay. And then we remove the tube, cap both ends of it, still leaving the middle like unexposed to light. Yeah. And then we go back to a dark lab that's, like, fully painted black, only has amber light, like a photography dark, dark room. Uh-huh. We open the tube, process the sample, and then we measure its, um, essentially, its state of luminescence. Okay. So, we're measuring the amount of, like, excited electrons that are within the sand grain itself. How okay. many electrons are, like, out of their preferred place. Okay. And then you... Bleach the sample, you expose it to light after measuring what the background state was, and then you try to match the decay of um, the electrons falling back into their preferred state, uh, the luminescence factor, or yeah, just watching the electrons reorganize themselves and see how much time would have had to have elapsed from the last time it saw light to seeing what you see now.
2: oh okay so you kind of like figure out how it behaves yeah. after seeing light right and then that allows you to figure out how long it's been yeah exactly. and how what's the time scale that you can measure with that um you can look
6: at maybe a few hundred years ago okay to you can take it back to hundreds of thousands of years ago but that's getting really old I think about the oldest is maybe 250,000 okay but that's really dodgy and um, especially because we're doing single grain analyses so we're dating individual grains of sand but uh-huh. dating like about 500 grains of sand per sample Wow so oh so does each grain of sand behave differently each grain of sand behaves differently oh, so, wow. so you, you can imagine that um, like a like a worm burrowing in the sand could take some grains of sand from a higher layer that's younger to an older layer that's, oh. that's or a deeper layer that's older. So there's a problem with bioturbation that only gets worse the older the sample is sitting there. So okay. there's more
2: bioturbation as
6: things get older. so, and it's so less that give you more
2: error on um- the date that you get, or just a bigger range from each a grain? Bigger range, yeah. Okay, so okay. you take all those dates that you get from each individual grain, and then you average them, or?
6: Um, not quite averaging. We're taking the floor age, so hopefully all of the ages converge on some common age, and we just plot them up with like basically the number grain number versus time versus age on okay. the y-axis, and um. We see if there's a common age that's that all of the grains sort of cluster around, and typically okay. there is. There's always outliers that are older. Um, sometimes it's hard to expose every grain of sand to the same amount of light, uh-huh. so there's incomplete bleaching. So it's like I mean, you could imagine having a landslide and depositing a lot of sand at the or a lot of material at the base of the hill, and when you go to measure the sand, you could think that not all of that sand saw light as it was falling down the hill. Maybe it was like underneath uh, a boulder or yeah. something or it was maybe so it in a looks shadow. Older it could look older than, than it. it actually uh-huh. is. Oh, okay. But typically it works really well. Nice. So it's been calibrated against radiocarbon and radiocarbon is a really uh, solid geochronometer that's been used for many years, many tens of years. Uh-huh. And it works really well with, um, with those samples. So dating, using... Radiocarbon to data layer, and then using IRS or OSL to date the same layer, the ages are really similar. Nice. Yeah. Wow,
2: that's really cool. I've never. I, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah. That's cool. really awesome. Yeah. Nice. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Alex. Thanks for talking to me. Uh,
3: my name is John Ebel. I'm a professor of geophysics at Boston College, and I am uh, a senior research scientist at the Weston Observatory of Boston College.
2: Great. Um, So we're here at the SCEC meeting. Yes. Um, So maybe what's your relationship to the the organization of SCEC?
3: Well, I did my PhD in Southern California at Caltech back in the 1970s, so I trained on California earthquakes uh, okay. and even though I've been doing earthquake monitoring in the Northeast, you know I need to pay attention to what advances are happening in, mm-hmm. in other parts of the world and the SCEC meeting is an obvious place to, to come learn about that.
2: Yeah nice, so could you maybe then tell me about what you've been doing in the Northeast?
3: Well, I've been um, monitoring earthquakes, so trying to figure out where the earthquakes are occurring, uh, which geologic structures might be active, how often earthquakes occur, where big earthquakes might occur, um, trying to find out you know, what would happen in the future and inform things like, for example, seismic hazard models. Um, help emergency managers prepare for earthquakes you know which earthquakes might strike and how, what kind of effects might they have on the on the cities in the northeast
2: yeah and so we don't typically think of earthquakes in the northeast right well be-
3: People know that there are earthquakes there, but they don't think of it as being as active as California, and that's right. What I tell people is California is 100 times more active than New England. And so the way I explain that to people is I say what they record in one year of earthquake monitoring in California, we have to wait 100 years to record the same number of earthquakes in New England. But most of the earthquakes are small in both places and then a small percentage of them are much larger.
2: Okay, and so how does that in frequency affect the earthquake hazard?
3: Well, the the way it affects the earthquake hazard is the following. Uh, California averages a damaging earthquake once every probably three or four years. Uh, New England probably averages a damaging earthquake once every couple hundred years. You know, the last significant earthquake we had was 1940, centered in New England. Um, that was a magnitude five and a half, actually a pair of five and a halfs in, in um, New Hampshire. Before that, 1904. Before that, you had to go back to 1755.
2: So in New England, we don't have an active plate tectonic boundary. So why why are there earthquakes there?
3: Why are there earthquakes in New England? That That's an interesting and intriguing And yet important scientific question. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that we have a plate boundary at the center of the Atlantic. We also have a plate boundary along the west coast of the United States, including California, the famous San Andreas Fault. And what uh, GPS monitoring has shown and what geologic studies have shown is that the interior of the plate is very slowly being squeezed. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of old faults, particularly in the Appalachian region uh, and then in in other areas, the New Madrid seismic zone, along the St. Lawrence River, there are old faults and some of those old faults apparently are being reactivated in the squeezing. They're just old zones of weakness and where the rock is weaker it tends to fail more frequently or, or have a higher probability for failure. So that's in, in a very general way what causes the earthquakes, but why a damaging earthquake occurs at one place and not another place, something we can't explain yet.
2: Right, it's, and it's harder with that more sparse data set. I'm it's guessing. very
3: hard with the sparse data set. I mean every earthquake is a new data point for us, Yeah, but we have to literally wait hundreds of years to really collect the data we really need. And we're obviously not going to do that in the next year or two.
2: Right. So can you explain, um, for somebody who might not have heard of it, what seismology is?
3: Yeah, seismology is, is the study of earthquakes, uh, where they occur, why they occur, what the physics are of the occurrences. So there's a lot of, of details we try to, to, to determine. Um, An earthquake is really a crack in the rock where the rock has slid. How big is the crack and how that relates to magnitude? How much sliding there was? What was the orientation of the crack? How does that orientation relate to the geology? Those are some of the technical questions we investigate. We'd ultimately like to be able to predict earthquakes if we could. We're nowhere near being able to do that. Given that we can't predict earthquakes, what we'd really like to be able to do is to just say, well, an earthquake most likely would occur on this kind of structure, that kind of structure, and the probability is once in a 100 years, once in 1,000 years, once in 10,000 years. Mm-hmm.
2: And then estimating how large of an earthquake is p- and possible.
3: estimating what the magnitude is. That's exactly right. So, for example, I participated in a study that was published a few years ago Uh, where we did about a dozen or so what we called earthquake scenarios in different parts of New England Mm. where we um, posed an earthquake happening of a certain magnitude. We predicted what the ground shaking would be, put that into a, a special computer program that assesses uh, potential for damage and then we estimated what the, the amount of damage would be loss of life uh, injuries etc and that was then given to emergency managers who use that for planning yeah. you know they need to know what kind of if we had an earthquake what kind of emergency would would we be dealing with yeah. you know are, are the hospitals going to be damaged are we going to be dealing with a few injuries or are we going to be dealing with thousands of injuries people who lose um electric power you know yeah. in california it doesn't matter what time of year the earthquake occurs the weather's pretty nice yeah you lose electricity in new england in january when people need heat when yeah. people need light um, hospitals have to function and that's a a very serious situation. Yeah.
2: So you told me you have a book coming out soon?
3: I do have a book that I've written, uh, it's, it's called um, New England Earthquakes, The Surprising History of Earthquake Activity in the Northeast. And what I do is I really summarize what we know about the earthquake history, the largest earthquakes that have occurred going back right to 1638, right after the Pilgrims landed, that was the first significant earthquake that was felt in the region. Where was that? Uh, that I We don't know where it was centered. I think it was centered in central New Hampshire. Oh, okay. But it was felt all through the Massachusetts colonies and Connecticut and Rhode Island, and it was felt along the St. Lawrence River, and um, really scared people. And um it was a an earthquake that the shaking was so strong people said they had trouble standing without holding on to something.
2: Oh wow. That's
3: how strong the earthquake right. shaking was.
2: So in New England you're really relying on that that history to put together what's happened.
3: For earthquakes before, say the nineteen thirties, when we started having good seismic instrumentation, all of my research involved looking at old diaries and newspapers and reports and yeah. and you know, letters and written descriptions and then trying to infer from those what actually happened.
7: Yeah.
3: Certainly the most significant event for damage in New England was the 1755 what we call Cape Ann earthquake mm-hmm. because we think the epicenter was offshore Cape Ann. Okay. And that destroyed a third of the chimneys in Boston. Uh-huh. Some streets were so covered with bricks they couldn't even drive a carriage down them uh-huh. after the earthquake. Um The steeple atop Fannell Hall was, was damaged to the point that it had to be repaired. The next year, so that's that's really, I think the the earthquake that that we worry about the most as as an example of what could happen, and the the study, the recent study of of potential earthquakes, we said, well, let's put a Cape Ann earthquake offshore, yeah, and the prediction is several uh, billion dollars worth of damage in New England if that earthquake were to recur today. Wow,
2: well, thank you so much for talking to me. This is great. You're welcome. Okay.
5: Can I just say that I was under the impression that earthquake predictability was way further in law than it sounds like it is? <laughs> Are you starting to feel less
2: safe in Massachusetts?
5: Well, ah, no. I mean, and it's funny, like, I lived in Japan for five years, okay. and we had earthquake events all the time. We knew what to do. Our houses moved, and this is back in the 90s, our houses moved in order to accommodate the tremors and it's really mind blowing that there's certain areas of of this country that haven't figured that out yet yeah you know and i think a lot of it has to do with like governance and red tape but still like also the japanese always seemed to kind of know when the next earthquake was coming but apparently it's not as clear cut as i thought
2: Yeah, well, so that's a good point. Um, So one thing that Japan really has going for it in their earthquake science, and they do really prioritize earthquake science because the whole country is susceptible to it, um, and as well as, like, the volcanic hazard there. But um, Japan has an early warning system for earthquakes, which we do not have in the U.S. They have it in Mexico, too. It actually kicked in, um, I forget if it was one or two years ago, there was a big... uh, Mm earthquake in mexico and they got early warning and i mean it's 30 seconds 60 seconds but it's a meaningful amount when you're facing a major earthquake um and part of that is just that japan has decided to invest in earthquake science in this way where they created a grid of seismometers so if there's an earthquake in one place they really have a good resolution to detect it quickly and send that warning out they have like a prototype for this in california but it's only currently given to people who are um state scientists Hey, you guys it's Laura just jumping into the conversation after the fact to fact check myself there is in fact a publicly available early warning system for LA California um, it's called ShakeAlert, and it's an app that you can download on your phone and they're still working to develop a more comprehensive early warning system there okay back to the conversation but yeah, Japan's really on top of their their engineering right. and their... And even
5: with how prepared they are, like, their last earthquake was pretty devastating with the Fukushima-like plant. And they yeah. have a lot of nuclear energy as well. So it was interesting to listen to the scientists talk about how they right. have to work with that.
4: Yeah. This might... I don't know if this is what other folks, how you're thinking about this, but what you're saying, Edwin, to me, I think that part of part of it is that it's a part of the culture like if you go back into history in japanese culture like they talk about earthquakes because that was a part of their culture so of course when you're convincing a public that earthquakes are a thing there's like this cultural knowledge there's this this like familial knowledge that's like yeah earthquake is a thing and we as a people have overcome this hazard for generations of course in the modern age we're going to do it as well but this really touches on I don't mean to be negative about this um, scientist research, but they talk about the first recorded earthquake and they are in association with when white people first came to this country. I'm sure there is a wealth of knowledge from native and indigenous folks in this country who lived here about the history of earthquakes and the history of those hazards. So I wonder if our reluctance to be really afraid of earthquakes is tied to the fact that none of us were like from here. And so we don't have that that knowledge from the past that this is something we have to be worried about that's a really good point mm-hmm. but
5: also like we've i mean there's famous stories of like massive earthquake events in this country like the one in san francisco like mm-hmm. it's almost like we're refusing to learn from these events mm-hmm. right we repopulate these areas without making the changes we need to make to better suit ourselves for the next coming event and like again i know i've brought this up every yeah. time we've stopped like this documentary we were watching and this, i was listening to this podcast and it was like california is long overdue a massive event right and again i thought that was along the lines of like the predictability i thought was like over the but it, apparently it's not as clear cut but right. still they know it's coming because they know the history they it's, just it's, don't yeah. know when mm-hmm. but it's coming so like what are we doing as a government to prepare ourselves yeah right well so that's people right that's and what, we're not
2: that's exactly what this organization SCAC, is like aiming to deal with is the, that lack of preparedness and like the knowledge that it's not like a matter of if it happens but when it happens how will we react and will we be prepared and so one thing that like skeck has done successfully is they put a seismologist um, Lucy Jones she's like the big seismologist in, in California who like every time there's an earthquake she goes on TV and she tells everybody about what happened but she spent a year in the mayor's office in LA trying to interact with people around policy and infrastructure to make to figure out what would happen Happen in LA if there when there is a big earthquake, you know, and to actually put more science into the policy. Right, and and,
5: and uh, along the same lines, the question now becomes: How receptive is the general populace and these politicians and lawmakers who are not necessarily skilled in these fields? How receptive are they in hearing these and, and these warnings that are coming from scientists in all fields?
2: are listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura fader Today's episode is part two of a very special episode featuring interviews with earthquake scientists of many varieties. These are interviews that I performed at the 2018 Southern California Earthquake Center meeting, that's SCEC, uh, in Palm Springs, California. Um, you can check out old episodes of Lab Talk with Laura on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or any place else that you listen to podcast you can give us a like on Facebook so please go subscribe check it out give us a positive review if you like what you hear okay let's hear another interview
1: I'm Kai Johnson Uh, I'm at Indiana University I uh, I'm an associate professor I've been there for 13 years and um, I've been involved in SCEC for at least the last 10 years or so uh, on the uh, planning committee
2: so can you tell me about the research that you do
1: Right, so I do, so I I study earthquakes, generally speaking, but i primarily looking at the earthquake cycle using geodetic data or other, so satellite-based measurements of the surface motion, so GPS or, or, or INSAR, satellite radar measurements, uh, to track ground motions, and I look at the earthquake cycle—that is, the the build-up uh, of stress and strain leading up to an earthquake—that we can measure and infer from surface motions, and the earthquake itself, the sudden break of the rock, and the and then the sudden motions that we measure again with these with GPS satellite uh, data, and then what happens to the Earth and the crust as it adjusts over time, slowly after an earthquake, and so. Um, I look at uh, for things like we can use these measurements of surface motions to try to identify areas uh, where there's high potential for earthquakes, so look where the strain accumulation rates are fastest, Mm -hmm. which faults may be the most active, and so examining for earthquake potential. Yeah.
2: So do you focus mostly on California? Do you work in other places? So
1: I work in California. Uh, I'm also now been working a lot in Japan, okay. so subduction zones in Japan, northern and southern Japan. And uh, right now, those are my two areas. I've done work in the past in uh, Taiwan, uh, where which is very seismically active and has very high rates of earthquake production and deformation.
2: What, um, what do you think are some of the biggest questions facing people who are using this kind of data to study earthquakes right now?
1: Yeah, so um, some of the big things we're working on are um, can we use surface observations to infer the uh, physical properties of the crust and the mantle, um, because we can't uh, directly observe those, but we can use earthquakes and the response to earth, how the ground moves following earthquakes to sort of probe, you know, how the, the physical properties of the crust, uh, and the faults themselves and, 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 and how they slide, uh, the frictional properties of faults. So, um, those are, that's one of the big areas, uh, of, that I work on, um, also, um, there's an issue of us uh, so using these measurements. To sort of forecast earthquakes, where there's the likelihood for you know where it, there's high likelihood for earthquakes, uh, It's a big area of research, and um, yeah, that, so that change, right? that's an area that's being rapidly developed as well. So
2: how do you think it's going? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, so Skek's a big so this organization Skeck is a it's a big part of that work. We're collecting now large amounts of data, which is making the problem more. Uh, uh, tractable uh, n- uh, new GPS measurements, but also now coming in uh, lots of new InSAR data that's giving us very dense measurements. So the uh, you know so we're making advances partly because our observations are getting richer and richer and more dense, and um, and SKEx a big part of that because uh, SKEx uh, involved very much in this. Uh, Unified California earthquake rupture forecast, and that's a big effort within SCEC, but outside of SCEC as well, to generate an earthquake forecast model for California and for the so,
2: entire state. For
1: the entire state, yeah. and then the USGS has, you know, extends beyond California through their ShakeMap effort. So there are these various forecasting efforts that, and uh, the kind of work I'm doing with. Uh, um, modeling of the the ground motions, the GPS data, is now being incorporated into those kinds of forecasts. So, yes, yeah, so that's the direction the field's moving.
2: So, it's very collaborative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, in particular, that, that model, because that involves geodesists like me, pe- you know, seismologists, uh, people who study the statistics of earthquakes, um, people that study the dynamics of earthquakes. It's a very collaborative effort, absolutely.
2: Um, so you work with satellite data, um, that's InSAR,
1: right? InSAR. Yeah. InSAR is satellite-based radar, so mm-hmm.
2: you're,
1: you're bouncing radar signals off the ground surface and recording the returns and, and getting distance measurements. Yes.
2: And so, is that that data is becoming more and more abundantly available, or?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's uh, new satellites up now that are uh, designed specifically for. Um, right <laughs> back. For this for this um, application, and so they're designed with high repeat time. So now there's, we used to have to wait a couple weeks before a satellite would return to a spot to get a repeat measurement, but now it's something like it's something like a couple of days.
2: Okay. So and yeah, so, so we're
1: getting much more frequent measurements, which is allowing us to get you know higher resolution measurements of motions, but more frequent, high density. Time.
2: And so, what are you um, extracting from those satellite data?
1: So, from that data, when we combine it with ground, well, GPS measurements, which are measurements of motions of monuments on, that are on the ground surface, so permanent monuments, so those have a certain, you know, more accuracy, uh, but far fewer of them than you get, far fewer measurements than you get from the, the, the INSAR. Anyway, so we're combining those to get uh, much more. More detailed measurements of the distribution of strain of the Earth's surface. So that's the that's the, you know, the measure of the deformation of their surface, um, becoming much more dense now. And uh, that allows us to compare uh, more, more precisely with where earthquakes are occurring, earthquake distributions. And these will be lead to these better you know, forecasts for where there's a potential for a future earthquake because we have better, more more dense measurements of the surface deformation, the surface strain.
2: Mm-hmm. And you said, so sometimes you look at the satellite data from actual earthquakes, the, the moment of the sure. earthquake? Sure, and
1: then, and then the same kind of data are, are fantastic, When you have an earthquake, you get these very, you know, very large sudden displacements that are recorded. Um, And then we can use that to infer where the earthquake happened, how big it was, you know, what the distribution of the slip was on the fault and where in the crust that happened but also then continuing to watch the surface motions for, well, days, years, and then, you know, now decades after an earthquake, we see the Earth's crust slowly adjust to those earthquake stresses. So the earthquake loads up the crust, and then it slowly, you know, recovers over over these longer time periods. And that tells us something about the Earth's... Earth's structure and its material properties. It's very important for understanding this earthquake cycle, this repeated, you know, earthquake events over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, um, are all earthquakes recorded by satellites or is it kind of a chance thing if, if a satellite happens to be pointed in the right spot, obviously you don't know exactly when and where an earthquake Right. Right.
1: So the, the beauty of the INSAR is that we can capture earthquakes all over the globe, even in places we don't have, you know, stations on the ground where people are recording with GPS. And mm-hmm. so this allows uh, us to study earthquakes that occur quite remotely, you know, uh, uh, or, um, and, and, and with these re- return times of satellites of now a couple days, you might have to, you might not be able to look at what happens, you will not be able to observe uh, any deformation that's going on for, for, for in, in a day or two after the earthquake, but we still capture, you know, measurements before and after the earthquake, and so we can get a really good idea of what the surface deformation was during that event. So, and then, you know, where there's dense GPS data, in many places in California, for example, there's continuously recorded, we continuously record the positions of these, these monuments. And so when there's an earthquake, we can actually do uh, rapid solution, you know, every second track the motion of the ground during the earthquake itself and, and, and watch the ground motions in time through an earthquake and then continuing on after the earthquake. So that's where you have, if you have that data available, which we do over much of California and a few other places in the world as well.
2: Cool. Um, well, is there anything else that didn't come up that you want to talk about?
1: No, that kind of summarizes what I do. And, okay. and yeah.
2: Cool. Um, so the last thing is on my show, um, the the way we end every show is a game that I created called GTA, guess that acronym, um, which kind of addresses the fact that there's lots of acronyms uh, that's in science. Funny. Yes. And normally I have a, a co-host who's a who's not a scientist, uh-huh. who's a comedian actually, uh-huh. um, who we make them guess the acronyms. But I obviously I'm doing the interview, and uh-huh. um, so I, do you want to give me an acronym to try to guess? Obviously, I might you know I might have a little bit of a extra knowledge since I do. Hang uh. Out well,
1: one acronym name i actually used was surf, mm-hmm. right
2: okay um i think you told me what it means
1: yeah. oh so surf is um, uh
2: maybe it's US... it's u-c-e-r-f yeah and then the three is just the version uh, number, that's kind the of, version like number. You've that was your one, the two last three. version yeah um so you Uni- universal um, california i
1: think it's unif
2: Unified. Well, this is
1: funny because here I'm now having trouble. Yeah, with you're California. It's California earthquake rupture forecast, uh-huh. and I very rarely say the whole thing, but I think it's uniform. Uniform. So it's a uniform forecast. Yeah. Uh,
2: so that's meaning to bring everything together. Yeah,
1: unify. It may be unified. Unified. Similar word, right? So you're taking lots of information and putting it together into one unified. Uh, Calculation. I think it is unified. So (laughs) I've got to guess the acronym, too. That actually
2: has happened a few times. I'm sure somebody provides an acronym and then they forget what it
1: means.
0: Cool. Well, thanks so much. All right. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so I'm Julian Lozos. I'm an assistant professor of geophysics at Cal State Northridge. Um, so what I do um, is I am interested in the physics of the earthquake process. I'm interested in the physics of how faults do the thing, and because it is incredibly not efficient to sit around and wait for an earthquake, or uh, nor is it really helpful for understanding hazard, um, what I do is I make fake earthquakes on my computer to try and understand what the real ones could do before they do it. <laughs> um, within SCEC, I am someone who's come to SCAC, I guess, 11 times now. Um, I was about to say I have no power, but um, I guess I am actually one of the co-leaders of the Cajon Pass, what we call Earthquake Gate Area, which is a thing that basically is a question of, here's the spot that's complicated, and uh, can the earthquake go through it or not? Is the gate open or closed? So I'm one of the organizers for that.
2: Cool. Nice. Um, So the models that you do are called dynamic rupture models, right? Um, So maybe... What, what kind of modeling efforts have you done recently, and could you maybe explain what the purpose
0: of those are? So uh, dynamic rupture modeling, it captures the fact that everything is moving super duper fast in an earthquake. Mm-hmm. So I know that most people, when they hear earthquake, they think of just the shaking. But from my standpoint, the shaking is actually a symptom of an earthquake. Uh, um, an earthquake, from my standpoint, is a fault, which is a plane of weakness in the Earth's crust. It's like a ribbon cutting down into the Earth. Um, reaches some point where um, it can't withstand all of the forces from plate tectonics and it unzips really fast and by really fast I mean like kilometers per second fast yeah and so that's that's dynamic that's the definition of dynamic there's a whole lot of things happening um, it's the sides these giant blocks of rock on either side of the fault are moving um, things are scraping past each other um, you have seismic waves um, you have all kinds of things moving very quickly and so the kind of modeling that I do um, captures in a lot of detail all of these things that are moving very quickly during an earthquake
2: nice. yeah. um, so one thing I've seen you work on is so well actually let's uh, talk about Cajon pass maybe yeah. and so have you modeled this particular area you called it an earthquake gate so that's you you already kind of explained that's like mm-hmm. the earthquake might stop or it might continue through and you kind of are getting at that question with yeah. your models right
0: yeah so um, again one of the big questions in in earthquake physics is 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 what makes earthquakes stop because okay. Okay. The, most, the more they don't stop the bigger they become Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of past work that's sort of emphasized the idea that it's complexity that makes it stop like if a fault is bent or if there's a discontinuity or if there's something that makes it extra stuck together there that's the kind of stuff where earthquakes stop and so um, Cajon Pass is um, if any of you, I, I guess I don't know what part of the country I'm talking <laughs> to Cajon Pass is in inland Southern California it connects basically the greater Los Angeles area to the desert, and then pretty much the entire eastern U.S. Uh, if you were to drive from L.A. to Vegas, you would have to go through Cajon Pass, and um, it is a narrow mountain pass that is uh, basically where the San Andreas Fault goes through, and then the San Jacinto Fault, which is a young, really active fault. It's uh, it's it's a baby. It's only about a million years old, um, <laughs> in geologic is, time. Yeah, it's, it's a total ba- baby. Yeah. May- maybe it's a pre pre-adole- <laughs> hyperactive pre-adolescent. It's the most ah. active fault in California, but it um, these two faults come together. Um, And one of them, the San Jacinto kind of branches off from the San Andreas. And then there's also a gajillion other smaller faults and slower moving faults that are there. And the question is, um, you know, because there's so much complexity there and because the San Andreas and San Jacinto are both really major faults, can earthquakes, do they stop there? Do they keep going? Can they be on more than one fault? Um, And so that's uh, because this is an area where there's so much going on and there's a lot of existing research. um, And also because, again, there's freeways that go through there railroads, water lines, gas lines, power lines, you name it, that supplies L.A., it goes through there and it crosses these faults. So there's a lot of interest in it. Um, Most of the existing Cajon Pass research is, again, is observational. It's about what is there, where are the faults, how fast are they moving, when did they last have earthquakes. But from my standpoint, like as someone who makes models, I want to get at, like, okay, so if this is what's happening, what physics can contribute to possible earthquakes. Um, So I'm not trying to predict an earthquake. Um, Nobody can do that. Um, But what I'm trying to figure out is what kind of earthquakes can happen then there. There's no when component to what I do, just what. Yeah. Um, so what I like to do um, yeah. is sure. use all that I can from the existing data. Like, OK, you have a shape of a fault. Oh, you have a sense of what all the forces acting on the fault are. Oh, you have a sense of the rock around the faults. Oh, you have a history of earthquakes that might have happened there in the past. So these are all things I can use to put into my model, and which then does all of these really horrific differential equations and uh, <laughs> gives me some answer about earthquake size and slip and then I can compare that to other observations to see if it makes sense. Because you can make a model do anything. You can make it so big you'll feel it on the East Coast. (laughs) But that's not realistic. Um, So by looking at the observations that exist I can try to make sure my models are doing things that look like that and then are doing realistic physics. And so there's sort of within that in my mind two approaches. One is um, constrain it by matching stuff we know happened. Um, So I've already published a paper on an earthquake that happened in December of 1812. It was about a 7.5. It caused a significant amount of damage. It was actually the first deadly earthquake in California's history. Oh wow! And it um, it uh, for a long time was thought to be one fault, and then they did some reevaluation and thought, oh, maybe it was the San Andreas instead of that other fault. And now I'm like, I think there's strong evidence, including the physics, to suggest that it was actually both the San Jacinto and the San Andreas. Ah. Um, and so I'm trying to like tune my model to match the geologic observations for those faults, and that's what happened. This it made this thing that looked like what we know about 1812 and happened to be two faults. Yeah. Um, but then, so I can make my models do realistic things by trying to match specific earthquakes, but then once I know that it has kind of realistic things I can start to work on scenarios like what could happen if it started there what could happen if it started there what could happen if the, the stress there was a little higher or a little lower right
2: so. and then you look at like the directions and yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you talk about constraining it based on what happened in that earthquake like are you just talking about where people felt it because there's not a lot of data from yeah. that right so outside I, of human
0: reporting I'm guessing well there's geologic data okay, about that right. earthquake so um, there's a lot of paleoseismic data which is um, if you know if paleo paleontology is digging up dead animals uh, paleoseismology is digging up dead earthquakes. It's yeah. going and slicing into a fault and seeing where the ground surface was broken okay. in the past yeah. and so there's a, a really good record of where that happened and about how much uh, the fault moved in um, 1812 but the problem is that the resolution of paleoseismology unless there's some other like very clear marker like with 1812 it's super clear because there's trees that got affected by the earthquake and their tree ring for the year of 1813 is really screwed up because oh. of the 1812 earthquake. Oh wow. Um, but for uh, just from paleoseismology you can't tell things that were only a couple years apart. Uh-huh. And so the the question that got me interested in that is so you have, there's three fault strands in that area. There's San Andreas the northern San Jacinto and the central San Jacinto which are separated actually more than the San Jacinto is separated from the San Andreas Um, and there were two big earthquakes there was one in 1800 and one in 1812 so and there's paleoseismic evidence for an earthquake in the early 1800s on all three of those faults but there's only Uh, two earthquakes okay so one of them has to have been on two faults yeah and so that's sort of what got me interested in that nice
7: yeah
0: Um, Um, and then I also do use uh, reports of damage, um, especially in in that area you're looking at Spanish missions. But that's actually kind of a more... Um, regularized building than you can than a lot of things uh, because they're all made of adobe. They all had very similar construction styles and materials. Um, but then and then another thing that I can use to constrain it is, is actually um, things called precariously balanced rocks, which are exactly what they sound like. They are rocks that are perched, and you would think they had fallen down in earthquakes, but they didn't. Which means that there hasn't been an earthquake strong enough to knock them down. Yeah. And so, like by comparing the ground motions from the model to uh, the the rocks and to the missions and to what Felt reports that there are I was able to go okay. Um, so the physics of the model allowed several possible scenarios, but when I compared it to all of that stuff, um, one of them made a lot more sense than the others for that specific earthquake. Uh-huh. But that, but then again, that's looking at one specific earthquake. The others are all still like physically plausible things that we could consider for
2: um,
0: scenarios for yeah. other earthquakes.
2: Right. That's pretty yeah. cool though that you can take all of that and kind of say this is the most yeah. plausible thing that happened yes. 200 years yes. ago. It was a
0: really fun thing to do because I got to be a detective. <laughs> (laughs) detective. detective in addition to a scientist. I got to read historical records and look like, okay, what did break? What did you feel, you know? Nice.
2: Nice um, how did you end up in this field of study?
0: So that, that is a convoluted story. Um, so I was actually always interested in the earth and how it does things and how it got the way it was when I was little. Yeah. Um, I was always, I was, I mean, when I was like four or five, I was super into volcanoes and everyone thought I was going to be a volcano scientist. Um, but I've been interested in, so I've been interested in this for a long time, and I've also had a lot of other interests in my life. And so, um, I actually, my undergraduate degree and first masters are in music. Oh, um, and uh, then I, so again, I did. I, I'm originally from the East Coast, and then I moved to California to oh, do uh, from the, the Washington Coast. D.C. area. Oh, okay,
2: cool.
0: And I moved to California for music school.
2: Any particular Uh, subset
0: of music? Composition. Okay,
2: cool.
0: Yeah, haven't written anything in 11 years. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so I I moved to California for music school, and right after I sent that, yeah, I'm going to go to California, I accept, um, was the centennial of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, Uh, which was big enough news to be on the news in Pennsylvania, which is where I was in undergrad. And I was like, I'm going to die in an earthquake. I need to read about this so I don't... Screw up. <laughs> um, and then it was one of those things that once I re- – the more I read about it, the more I wanted to know and the, the less afraid I became. But also the cooler I thought it was, the more questions that I had and I realized some of these questions that I had still haven't been answered. And actually some of them, those questions I wondered about even when I was first learning about that. I'm like, well, that fault is shaped weird. What does it do? That's like kind of still what I'm doing.
7: Yeah. Um,
0: but uh, yeah, so I moved to California and got interested in that. Um, music school was kind of burning me out. It was kind of making me not want to listen to music ever huh. again. (laughs) Uh, And uh, then I flipped my car off the freeway and went, okay, um, I'm not dead what am I going to do now? And I decided, you know, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to switch. Wow. So very convoluted. Well, I'm but, um, glad that you survived that. Yeah, it was, <laughs> and that was a bad day. That sounds, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, upside down in a farmer's field.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
2: Wow, that, not is reckon- not, that is not the story expect yeah, I expected.
0: Yeah, I would say if you're considering a, a career change, um, don't wait for something like that to decide. Yeah,
2: but it made you, it, it clarified for you what yeah, you really wanted to yeah, do Yeah, because I'd life.
0: already, yeah, because I was really enjoying reading about that and going to like see these vaults that were so close to where i lived yeah and then it was like yeah. you know what you know music school is making me not want to do music like even before i had that accident i was thinking you know i'll take a break after this master's yeah. and then i went straight into a completely
7: different master's
0: <laughs> and i'm still and here. it worked out yeah was definitely one of the best decisions of my life that's
6: awesome so, yeah
0: cool
2: um well, is there anything about your research that we haven't touched on that you want to talk about?
0: Um, I mean, we've gotten to the gist of a lot of what I do just in talking about Cajon Pass and in talking about 1812. Yeah. Again, I'm really interested in just understanding um, what makes earthquakes happen the way they do, what factors control the size and location of earthquakes. Um, so there are some people that are interested in how they start. I guess I'm a little less, I mean, that's always part of the yes. picture, but um, still the what makes them stop is more where I'm focused. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and I so you, I'm, you,
2: all of your models start with, there is an earthquake.
0: <laughs> yeah, like there are right. some kinds of models where they assume the earthquake is this big and it's here. Yeah. And mine are like, I'm going to start the earthquake there under these conditions and see what happens. Uh-huh. And um, again, I, I really think that, um, I mean, obviously it's still not going to be as detailed as Real earthquake. There's always simplifications. There's always things that we don't even know we don't know. Right. But um, it's still a way to build up scenarios. A way to build up data sets. It's a way to gain understanding that isn't just waiting for earthquakes, because that's again not efficient and also be kind of hurts people. Yeah. So. but I, re- I really think, um, from a modeling standpoint, using data to constrain it is super important. Mm-hmm. And I also think that understanding the earthquakes that we've had in the past is really important for understanding the earthquakes we could have in the future. Nice. So,
2: yeah. Cool. Thanks so much for doing this interview. Well, thank it you. Really that really
0: was fun. fun. To it was talking to
2: you. Okay. I have
4: a really basic question, a definition question. So when folks talk about active faults, is that, like, a gray area that defines that? Or is there, like, a really hard definition?
2: That's a really good question. So, um... It is definitely a gray area, and sometimes people make mistakes and they think a fault is inactive, and then, bam, an earthquake comes through, and you find out that fault was not inactive. And like um, one of the earlier interviewers talked about triggered earthquakes, and so those are happening in the Midwest in a place where most of the mm. faults are considered inactive, but you can go Activate reactivate it by yeah, like drilling. Exactly. And stuff. Well, so they were reactivating them by injecting fluids into them, the yeah. Cracking and all that. Yeah.
4: Stuff. So related, what is the utility of having that distinction? How does it help you study earthquakes to divide them that way?
2: Right. So there's faults all over. You know, in New England here, I could take you a couple miles away and we could look at a fault. And that's a place where there were earthquakes, 200 million years ago when Pangea was breaking up. And so it looks, you know, the same as an active fault, probably. it Maybe the environment's a little bit different or it's been um, exhumed or brought up from a greater depth, so it might look a little bit different, but there are faults everywhere. So it's important to distinguish, you know, if I take you up to Athol and I show you that there's a fault, um, that's not an active fault. And it's kind of obviously important to distinguish that from like the San Andreas, where Mm -hmm. it's like any moment an earthquake could come through, but it definitely can be deceiving if you map out faults and you think this one's so old that it can't be active. Faults are, I think Julian said this, they're pre-existing weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So they broke a long time ago. They do something called healing. So it does like, you know, a fault kind of fluids come through and new minerals come through and so it becomes less weak over time but it's still a weakness it's still a place that the earth broke so it's more likely to move on that fault than it is someplace that hasn't broken before mm-hmm. so they can be reactivated so i don't know the value of distinguishing but i mean i think it's the same with volcanoes you could you know it's important to think about what's active mm-hmm. and what's not so you could know where to Put your focus, but it can, that terminology can kind of deceive you too into being feeling like safe.
5: Yeah.
7: When but you it, can when also go
5: backwards and try to define what makes something active and what makes something not. And that would be important in the distinction as well. Understanding what a fault, like you just said, how you can reactivate different faults. And yeah. Why were they inactive before, right?
2: Right, right. So they generally become inactive because an area becomes less tectonically active. And that's something that's happening over millions and millions, millions of, of years. years yeah. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, a fault will there. there's what we, you know, have fast and slow faults. So Julian was saying like the San Jacinto is a young, active fault. So that's a new fault that formed in the last like two million years, which is Young for faults. Um, You know, the San Andreas has been active for I think like something like 20 million years. Um, But that new fault is like getting going so it's probably going to continue to slip faster and faster because it's accommodating a stress that wasn't being accommodated before Mm. versus some parts of the San Andreas could be slowing down because there's not as much activity there and that's such a long scale process that it's a little bit hard to parse that out but you can like with paleoseismology they might say like oh the slip rate here was actually higher 2,000 years ago like the fault was moving faster than it is today and that's something you could look at with GPS today you can kind of of try to parse out how fast some faults are moving and there's limitations to that too but yeah
5: mm. I have another question what I thought was really interesting about this scientist talk is he was more interested <clears throat> in why earthquakes stopped right right And that got me to thinking if he gets a better understanding of that uh, is, it, is it something we can use as a tool to stop? Uh-huh.
4: uh-huh
5: earthquakes or build around areas that will stop an earthquake so that we're safer because of it
2: that's a really interesting thought and it reminds me of Raquel was asking the other day too like why don't we just like make the earthquake happen so we have control over it right like and so it's kind of the answer I think for both of those is the same as it's so complicated we don't we might try to get at understanding why they start or why they stop but we could not possibly engineer to stop an earthquake and that leads me
5: to my next question is that and it comes also with the modeling of we can never really predict when an earthquake is coming. Right. Is that because of our lack of technology and tools to understand it? Or is it something like in protein modeling, there's certain proteins like the ones I work with, voltage gated channels are so massive and, and their binding sites are... Um, they're they're also transmembrane proteins, so it's hard to piece them out of the membrane without completely breaking them up, right? Mm. So we understand what they are, but we can't really model them. They're just massive proteins. You can't like say, okay, this is, uh, we can like crystallize this this protein. We can't crystallize voltage sensitive channels. Okay. The only voltage sensitive channel that has ever been crystallized is the potassium channel, and it's the only one that ever will be. It's not a lack of technology. Mm. It's wow. just, uh, just feasibility.
2: Feasibility. feasibility. Right. You know that.
4: Well, right. So-, so
5: we know that. Like, is that what's happening here? Mm. Like, is it the we won't ever be able to, or is it just because we lack the tools right now and the technology to be able to understand or model these things?
2: I think there will always be a degree of unpredictability with earthquakes, but technology has definitely advanced our ability to understand them in ways that we haven't before. So, like one that stands out um, that came up in another, anyways, the Kayakura earthquake in New Zealand a couple of years ago. Um, this relates to the active fault, inactive fault thing, too, that ruptured 17 different faults and was an earthquake unlike any scientist had ever observed before. And... Be- it was also observed by satellites and so we had like a really detailed data set of exactly what happened. It was observed by satellites, it was observed by seismometers, it was observed by GPS stations and all of that data together gave us a much better understanding of how something that complicated could happen. And they had the paleoseismic data, they had really good data, but is you can't tell when you look at it, like I think somebody mentioned you know, was this one earthquake, was it five earthquakes? Mm-hmm. It's really hard, you don't have the resolution to say, oh was one earthquake that happened in one year or five earthquakes that happened in ten years, you know? Um, that's, like, a level of resolution they just didn't have. But we continue to develop better and better models and understandings, but there's just a limit to how much we can possibly okay. observe. So I think, I think earthquake prediction will continue to improve, and absolutely one of the things that improves is our ability to say how big is this, like, how big of an earthquake will hit this area. But exactly when? No. No. But, like like Japan and Mexico, we could implement early earthquake warning if we invest in creating a network of seismometers that will give us the resolution of data to yeah. do that kind of timely prediction, too.
4: One of the interviewers brought up, like, the Earth doesn't care what temperature is. Right, like right. Because the Earth is a system, and there's, there's all yeah. these things that interact. And so, like, to us, an earthquake is a hazard. But to the Earth, an earthquake is releasing... The pressure of the continent, the fact that the continents are moving, right? There's some kind of inevitability to an earthquake that, like, it's, and a,
5: necessity it's
4: a process. It's an earth yeah. process that and happens for a reason. So the idea that we can stop or
2: start it or undo them, it kind of, it, it doesn't work, right? Well, and earthquakes give us all of these gifts, like the beautiful mountains that we have. Yeah, we wouldn't no. have them if we didn't have earthquakes, yeah. you right. know? You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. This concludes part two of our two-part episode about the Southern California Earthquake Center meeting in 2018 in Palm Springs, California. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Please check us out on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, any place that you listen to podcasts. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland and online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs and the Polymer Science Department. Thank you so much for listening. Stick around for WMUA News coming right up.